0: This is episode number 191, Super Immunity and Nutritional Excellence with Dr. Joel Furman. Welcome to The Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day.
1: We have a healthcare crisis where everybody is committing suicide with food. The idea that you're going to wait till you're 60 years old and develop high blood pressure, heart disease, or a cancer, and go to a doctor, and then in a 10-minute doctor visit, he's going to tell you about nutrition, how to clean up your act, that doesn't even make any sense. The doctor you're going to is when you have a problem. You shouldn't wait till you have a problem to start to eat healthy. You should have learned that through your whole life.
0: Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, and I'm super excited about today's guest. Before we get into it, I just want to say thank you to those of you supporting my work financially on Patreon and PayPal. And if you want to do so with just a few bucks a month or a one-time donation, you can do that in the show notes. Or if you just want to leave us a review, that goes a long way too. If you're interested in digging in deeper into plant-based nutrition, you can visit my new website, plantpowertribe.com, where I have frequently asked questions, resources, my cookbook for sale, and even some fun merch that I designed. So check it out, plantpoweredtribe.com. You're also invited to join my free Facebook group, Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney, and anyone can join. You don't even have to eat plant-based. So come join over 2,000 people and ask your questions and share your healthy habits. So let's get into today's guest, Dr. Joel Furman. He is an MD, a board-certified family physician, six-time New York Times best-selling author, and internationally recognized expert on nutrition and natural healing. He specializes in preventing and reversing disease through nutritional methods, and I personally have read several of his books and they are all awesome. He is the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation and on the faculty of Northern Arizona University Health Sciences Division. Dr. Furman coined the term nutritarian to describe a nutrient-dense eating style designed to prevent cancer, slow aging, and extend lifespan. For over 25 years, Dr. Furman has shown that it is possible to achieve sustainable weight loss, reverse heart disease, reverse diabetes, and many other illnesses using smart nutrition. In his medical practice and through his books and television specials, he continues to bring this life-saving message to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. He's been at this a long time, and he has such great stories and information out there that are truly powerful. And lately, I've been reading the book, How to Disease-Proof Your Children, and I've been really interested to learn about how a lot of cancer prevention and disease prevention starts at a super young age, especially during the developmental period. So you can check that book out, too, if you're interested. In this episode, we talked about where his interest in nutrition started, his world-class career in ice skating. And if you've heard him on other shows, he's mentioned it, but he's never gone into as much detail as in this show preventing and healing cancer with diet foods that you should eat every single day. We talked about the nutritarian diet, food addiction, how national authorities have actually been changing their dietary recommendations, how food affects mental health. We talked about supplements, mushrooms, soy, and also a bunch of the questions that you guys submitted as well. So there's a lot in this episode. You might even want to listen to it twice. And if you want more, you can check out com and get everything that he has put out into the world. So let's get into this powerful episode. Dr. Furman, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here.
0: Oh, it's so awesome to get to talk to you because I've been reading all your books and I've been studying plant-based nutrition for seven years. So to get to talk in person with you is pretty cool. Terrific. So I'd love to hear where your interest in nutrition came from and why you decided to become a doctor. I guess it came
1: from my childhood. I was involved. My father was sickly and overweight, and he started bringing books and information about nutrition from Dr. Shelton in the 1950s and 60s into our house, and he got healthier and lost weight, and I started reading a lot of those books. Of course, at first, I thought it was crazy because it seemed like that, you know, how could this be right if everybody else in the world is wrong, you know, and then I but as I matured and started going into that in more detail, I was on the United States World Figure Skating Team. I was a serious competitive athlete and found that eating healthy was a tremendous advantage. And then I kind of gravitated into after my skating career, I went into my family's shoe business. My father had a chain of shoe stores in the New York City area. But I always had in the back of my mind, this isn't, this isn't really what I wanted to do. I was really kind of had the passion for being a physician specializing in nutrition. I was contemplating You know, taking some. I was starting to take some courses at night, or have some interest in that. Then I met my wife. Of course, she wasn't my wife then. We started dating, and she was going to medical school, and started saying to me, "If you're so passionate about this, why don't you just drop the shoe business and go back to school full time?" They have these postgraduate courses at Columbia and at you know some major where you can just like sell the business and go back to school if you want to do that. So I did. I did. So with that encouragement, and then we got married, of course, in about a year after that. But I decided to. Um, so my father sold the business, he retired, and I went back to the postgraduate pre-med program at Columbia, specifically with the intent of being a doctor specializing in nutritional medicine.
0: How did your father feel about you switching careers and, and not wanting to be in the family business?
1: He wasn't thrilled, but he wasn't really that hurt by it either. He understood and he felt he'd be okay if we sold the business and he could retire, you know. So I think was, he was okay with it.
0: And. When did you link nutrition to health? Because I think a lot of people still say like nutrition is just if you're skinny or if you're fat and maybe there's a little bit of linkage. But like, how did you link those two together and what type of books were you looking for at that time?
1: Well, back in the 19, this was um, probably in the late in the 1960s and early 1970s. At that point, I was reading most of Herbert Shelton's works in the American Natural Hygiene Society. And I, but I was experienced in going to those conferences and going to the, and I spent some time at his facility and I saw a lot of people with my own eyes, you know, make, make miraculous health transformations through changing their diet. So I really bought into this concept when I was quite young, that we can control our health destiny and that most of these diseases are not only preventable, but they're reversible. And mostly they were the cause of nutritional stupidity and nutritional ignorance.
0: I also want to ask you about your figure skating career a little bit. I noticed that in other interviews it's mentioned, but I want to hear more about what that experience was like and like the pressure of that as well.
1: You're right. It was a lot of pressure. I, I always say that my figure skating career was much more stressful and high pressure than medical school was. Medical school was easy compared to the figure skating. You know what I mean? Because I was going to college at the same time, high school and college while trying to train six hours a day is very stressful, and I had to train at three in the morning, you know, from three to eight in the morning or three to seven in the morning when the rinks were empty, so we could get at that, you know, the, at that level. So it was a tremendous sleep deprivation and constant, very rigorous training. While I remember studying for my coursework, you know, in the car, while and eating in the car, studying in the car, and otherwise skating and physical training was my number one priority. And I went missing classes. I remember being. You know, called up in the front of the room in a, in, a, in high school, and the teacher said to me, what's more important to you, your school or skating? You're, you know, and I and of course, I said, my skating career, you know, um, it's, it, people didn't understand. But of course, it was it was pretty stressful. And especially because in 1973, we were second in the United States Pairs Championships. And the number one team didn't skate that well, but they were had a great reputation. And so they won the event by, I think, five judges and we had four judges out of the nine. It was a close competition, but didn't bother us at all because I assumed the next year was our chance because they were retiring and we would you know, be a, a great candidate for the upcoming Olympics. And then I got hurt and I couldn't walk for almost a year. So it kind of derailed my skating career. So while in 1974, well, I was number one in line for the national title. In the United States. I tried to to skate and get my foot better, but it wouldn't get better. It was just too painful. So I had to hang it up. So I couldn't compete in 1974 when we actually were number one ranked at that point.
0: Did you have any like depression around that? Like the change of identity?
1: You know, I think I did. I'm not, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it, you know, a major depressive disorder, but it was certainly, you know, sitting in the stands and being unable to compete in 74 and 75. I mean, it was like, um, it was like from being at the top of the world, all of a sudden now you're, you, know, you're, you can't even walk. I couldn't even walk. And I'd say, I just want to walk again. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. kind of upsetting because my foot was really not getting better and in bad shape. And then I tried to compete and get back into the national trials for the 76 Olympics. And I really wasn't all better at that point. And I had gone on a fast and emaciated myself, thinking that would help my leg heal, a foot heal. So we weren't really back at where I should be, and especially with all that time off. And then the competition for the Olympic t- National Championships Olympic Trials in 76 was held at the Broadmoor Arena in Colorado Springs at 6,000 feet altitude, which further made it more difficult for me after being out for a year. So, we didn't, so I couldn't perform at our best, even though we're back in the event. And we came in fourth in nationals in 76 after being out for two years of, out of the event. And the top three went to the Olympics. So I did not go to the 76 Olympics, even though I was ranked number one in the country in 74. And then after that, I got I got did, got did better after the Olympic tryouts and after the 76 Olympics and came in third in the world professional championships after that and actually got a little better and got back our former conditioning more. It just took time, you know. And then at that point, I wasn't, you know, in those days to be an amateur competitor, you couldn't take any money and you couldn't, you know, be paid for professional skating like they do today. Right now, the people that compete in the Olympics are professional athletes. They're being paid and supported. And in those days, it was all coming out of our own pockets, meaning our parents' pockets, to pay for that type of training, and and so I couldn't continue to go on as an amateur competitor after 76, after the 76 Olympics. So we turned pro, and then you know, and you know, maybe that's what um, would I never would have been able to pursue a career as a physician if that didn't happen. So you just look at the maybe it was the best thing in the world, you know. Better. And of course now I still enjoy sports and enjoy playing tennis and skiing and you know doing. And biking and doing all the hiking and doing all these things, I still enjoy And at the age of 66.
0: That's awesome. Uh, I actually had, there's a a figure skater named Megan Duhamel, and she was on the pairs team for Canada, and they won the gold medal in the last Olympics. And I met her on a panel at a veg fest because she also eats plant-based. So yeah, that's pretty cool. But so I want to talk about the problem with our healthcare system, because you mentioned that you went and got your MD specializing in nutrition, but most MDs I've spoken with don't seem to know a lot about nutrition and it's been really frustrating for me trying to have conversations with them about certain things.
1: Yeah, I mean, physicians aren't trained. who don't really know much about nutrition. Very few people do, but I'm trying to derail or not focus on that frustration people have because Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be going to your physicians looking for nutritional guidance. They're not the people that are going to help you here and they don't spend enough time with you anyway. Therefore, urgencies or emergencies And because they're not knowledgeable, you know, you're not. Except that your mailman or your lawyer isn't, or your person doing your plumbing's not knowledgeable about nutrition, because they're not. So why would you care if your physician knows nutrition or not? We want everybody to, you know, my feeling is to be reading, writing, arithmetic, and nutritional excellence in every schoolroom, taught taught across, you know, elementary schools, high schools, and colleges, which should be requirement because it's the most important thing that determines our health and our life and our mental attitude and our happiness and our physical being as we age it's the most important thing in our life is knowing how to protect ourselves from diseases and we have a healthcare crisis where everybody is committing suicide with food and the idea that you're going to wait till you're 60 years old and develop high blood pressure heart disease or a cancer and go to a doctor and then in a 10 minute doctor visit he's going to tell you about nutrition how to clean up your act that doesn't even make any sense The doctor you're going to is when you have a problem. You shouldn't wait till you have a problem to start to eat healthy. You should have learned that through your whole life. So I don't really see that the answer is having doctors trained. It's it's societal awareness. And every person in every career and every educational opportunity has to understand the importance of, of how to eat right.
0: I think that's such a great point that a lot of our health is our personal responsibility, and we can't just wait for somebody to fix us whenever something goes wrong. So like, I think a big challenge people have is decoding nutritional science, because there's so much out there. That's one of the reasons why it took me a while to change my diet, because I didn't know what to believe. So like, how do people know what to trust and believe when they're getting like pummeled from every angle? And then there's like funding from different industries and all kinds of things like that.
1: It's really difficult for people. I mean, you know, that's why people can, because there's so many people with different messages and that. You know, I try to explain and I write books on this, and I think my books are the most heavily referenced books for lay people that are ever done in my most recent book that's coming out now. And I have 12 books I've written, six of which have become New York Times bestsellers. They all have at least 500 scientific references that can be verified as to what I'm saying in the book. And I try to be as complete as possible investigating the question at, that is being answered at, the, at that point in the book, and not cherry pick or not go th- and go through the whole, all the data. And we give more credence to studies that go on for decades and follow large numbers of people and look at hard endpoints, because short-term studies that for one or two years, looking at soft endpoints like blood pressure or glucose levels or, you know, or weight loss are somewhat misleading, because any kind of unhealth, anything you can do in the short-term could result in short-term, like eating a Twinkie diet or just being on cookies could have a person be sick of eating, you know, eat less calories and lose weight and look a little better a year later, but they're not going to live a very long eating that way. And unless you maintain something for the rest of your life, it's you don't maintain any permanent benefits. So it has to be maintained forever. So the real question here is what's going to afford people the opportunity to be healthy as possible in the last 10 or 20 years of their life, not have dementia, not have full mental faculties, no cognitive impairments, or brain shrinkage, and, of course, no heart attacks, strokes, cancers in the process. And, and, be, and have their full physical capabilities, so they can, mental capacity, they can enjoy their life to the fullest then. So I think the evidence for that is overwhelming. And we know that this, the portfolio of natural plant foods that have the full variety of these anti-cancer substances called phytochemicals or phytonutrients is the answer. I always say that we've landed the man on the moon already. And what I mean by that is we already know how to win the war on cancer. The answer is vegetables. You have to eat a diet with lots of vegetables in it, especially green vegetables and other colorful vegetables. But people don't like that answer. They want a different answer. They want to be able to smoke three packs a day and have a magic pill and not get lung cancer. They want to be able to eat their their croissants and their bagels and their pizza and not get breast cancer. That's never going to happen. These processed carbohydrates cause cancer. If you want to eat them, you have to expect you're going to get cancer. You, you know, in the real world, life is unforgiving and it's not a fairy tale. You don't get something for nothing. You can't get a magic pill that's going to enable you to eat disease-causing foods and then have it undo with a magic pill. It just doesn't work that way. And there's so much false degree of expectations that oncologists and medical drugs can undo and make us live longer once we get cancer. And the reality is it's mostly futile and and the lifespan advantages you get from conventional chemotherapy for most common cancers is, is very marginal. At best, the best thing you know, so the winning the war on cancer, including making people live longer who have cancer, is still most affected by what we put in our body and how we eat and how we live, not by access to medical care.
0: And whenever you say eat more vegetables, like people think, well, how much more do I need to eat, especially if I have cancer?
1: Well, you know, I have a protocol for people with cancer. And it, um, and we see remarkable results, especially with the early stage cancers, being a lot of them being totally reversed, and some late stage cancers even being totally reversed. But and I, and I'm, I actually gave a lecture on that yesterday, right? Um, but in any case, and I have, and that new book I just wrote. What's it called? It's called Eat for Life. Okay. And it's it's now available on you order on Amazon. But by the time this podcast airs, it may be out there. But it's yeah. my probably my last book with over a thousand medical references showing that the same diet style that is most preventative against cancer is also most effective when a person has cancer. You know, there's not one diet when you, to prevent heart disease. Another diet, when you get heart disease, you switch to that diet to reverse it. No, it's the same diet for prevent, most effective for prevention is most effective when you have heart disease. The same diet for, prevention, for preventing cancer is most effective when you have cancer. And many people know I've coined that acronym, G-BONDS. G-B-O-M-B-S, which stands for greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, to dem- demonstrate so people can remember those foods with the most scientific support for being able to protect the bodies for, against cancer. And how many people eat a big salad every day with a dressing made with nuts and seeds instead of oil? I eat a big bowl of vegetable bean soup and have a wok vegetable dish with cruciferous and a lot of with mushrooms in there, and and water chestnuts and broccoli sprouts and snow pea pods. And, you know, we're talking about that these advancements in nutritional science over the last decade have given us tr- an unprecedented opportunity in human history to age slower, to live longer, and to really protect ourselves from fear of cancer. We have to utilize this full portfolio of foods available to us that wouldn't be available to our ancestors and would not have been available to the blue zones. The blue zones where people live an average of you know, six to eight, 10 years longer, are not representative of the ideal diet. They're just haphazardly eating those foods that are grown in those areas and doing better than the standard diets, but they're not scientifically designed to maximize human lifespan, and which is such as the nutritarian diet is, which takes the, the major best features of every blue zone, but also the recent science to show how you support human immune function and human to the, to the fullest. And that is, I think, not only evident from the scientific studies, but also evident from clinical evidence and clinical practice. And myself having 30 years now of utilizing this methodology in people with serious illnesses and looking at the outcomes has just given me, I think, is a tremendous blessing. And I have so much reward that I have felt from watching people recover and get well. And so I'm very grateful for that opportunity.
0: Can you go into more detail about the nutritarian diet for people?
1: Yeah, the foundational principle, of course, the nutritarian diet is getting as much micronutrients and phytochemicals in your diet per calorie, you know, and maximizing out I and mean, picking foods that have high micronutrient per calorie density. So that's where the formula H equals N over C, which means your healthy life expectancy is determined by the micronutrient bang per caloric buck. So you want to eat foods that are richest in nutrients. And of course, that means, by definition, eating a diet rich in green vegetables. Therefore, not only a, sal- a big raw salad every day, but also a serving of some ve- of cooked vegetables with green, with more greens that are maybe conservably cooked. In addition to the salad every day, so there's probably so my lunch might consist of a giant salad with some cruciferous greens on top, with tomatoes and on- you know, and onions or scallion, with a dressing made from nuts and seeds for their anti-cancer effects and also because they facilitate the absorption of the phytochemicals in plants. A lot of these fat soluble nutrients need some fat in the meal to maximize their absorption. So a nutritarian diet is rich in this full portfolio that's wide as possible. We want a huge variety of these plant foods in our diets. So we don't, Any diet style has been shown in the research that, for example, if you take the beans out of the diet, people don't live as long. Adding beans extends lifespan. Vegetables may have the most powerful effect against cancer, but the combination of vegetables and fruit gives more cancer protection than just vegetables alone. When you take the fruit out of the diet, like in a keto diet or something, that decreases your lifespan and decreases your ability to protect against cancer. Removing nuts and seeds out of the diet, making the diet too low in fat, with with fear of eating nuts and seeds for their fat content, has been shown in multiple studies to shorten lifespan, increase both cardiovascular death and all-cause mortality, increasing risk of cancer as well these compounds in nuts and seeds not only in themselves very protective but they also facilitate the absorption of other nutrients as well what i'm saying right now i'm giving examples that we widen the variety of foods in the plant kingdom these natural foods which we couldn't do years past now we can get wild blueberries and leafy greens in the winter time you know what i mean and now we can we have access to organic foods and while we have access to actually the best quality food ever available in human history with the best variety people don't eat those quality foods, they choose to eat the lowest quality foods that are, that are designed by food scientists to hook people and get them addicted to them. And so they become addicted, and once you're an addict, it takes over your ability to think straight and to think logically and to trust science and to weigh evidence, because now your decision-making and your behavior is controlled by your addictive drives at this point. And that is why it means you, that you don't want to give up your salt and your sugar and your oil and your cheese and all these things that are very, that are addictive substances that you've been brainwashed to think are okay. So the nutritarian diet on one hand has this high nutrient exposure from these G-bombs. On the other hand, it's also hormonally favorable because the excess hormones in the body can increase risk of cancer. And we're talking about the excess hormones are estrogen, insulin, and IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor one. And for example, when you're overweight, it makes you insulin resistant And the beta cells have to produce more insulin in response to every carbohydrate you eat so what i'm saying is there's no such thing as an overweight healthy person if your cholesterol is good and you're overweight if your blood pressure is good if you you know if you're not diabetic it doesn't mean you're okay just the fat on the body itself accelerates aging and increases your risk of premature cancer and premature death fat cells spew out cytokines lipokines toxic substances they promote aromatase which raises your estrogen levels so not only when you're overweight not only do you have higher levels of insulin Which is a growth-promoting hormone, a fat-storage hormone, which allows cancer cells to replicate. But it also so raises insulin, but it also raises estrogen. So you also get more estrogen stimulation of your breast and prostate for cellular replication. And then, if you throw into the mix more animal protein, which then is a primary growth promoter, because we know that you know the only time a natural species of a plant of a primate would get a high animal protein would be when they're nursing, you know, when they're getting the But in any point, in other words, when we're rapidly growing as a baby, the body produces more of these hormones, but as an adult, we're no longer growing and a high level of these growth-promoting hormones with the excess animal proteins being consumed by modern societies. We have tissues that don't grow anymore, so we're promoting the growth now of tumors and cancers, and in combination with high levels of estrogen and insulin, the high levels of IGF-1 can create a witch's cauldron of cancer causation. So it's the combination between the high glycemic carbohydrates, the processed foods, being overweight, and eating an excess amount of animal protein. It's that combination that really creates an unprecedented cancer epidemic and heart attack and stroke epidemic of people d- getting diabetes and becoming overweight. And almost our entire population in the United States is overweight today. I mean, 89% of people have a BMI above 23. And and of that so-called 10% that's a normal weight, the majority of those people, have a normal weight because they smoke cigarettes or they're alcoholics or they are sickly or they have autoimmune conditions or are cold cancers or some other medical difficulties or they're depressed. I mean, they're not, in other words, it's very few people, only about two and a half percent, eat healthy and exercise regularly. So this is a very, very, so it shows you the immense power of the pharmaceutical and food industry, their effect on government interference and their successful effect at getting people hooked on their products so people can't stop eating things they know are hurting them. And while people may be 20 to 100 pounds overweight and they know being overweight isn't good for them and they can't stop or control their behaviors in spite of the fact that they have get medical problems because the food is so addicting. And the only way people can make recoveries is with abstinence, just like alcoholics have to get off their alcohol completely. They can't just drink on the weekends. And the cocaine addict has to stop snorting cocaine to get well. And food addicts need a need the right information, and the right skill set and knowledge to be able to get well, reclaim their taste buds, learn how to enjoy natural foods, and in, in many cases have a safe place they can go to recover from their addictive behave, food behaviors. Now, I you may know I have a, a retreat in San Diego where people from all over the world come to get reclaim their health and to get rid of their food addictions. So people might come for a few months and lose 50 pounds, but the key here is that when they leave and they go back into the real world, they now have the skills to meet those obstacles and continue to do what they learned at our retreat, to continue those delicious recipes and and the time away from those addictive triggers enable them to enjoy eating this way and stick with it, so to prevent the recidivism. And that's why drug addiction centers for cocaine addicts to keep people for two to three months too. Because you need time for people to be able to get back to who they are again, because the food changes people's personalities, changes the way they think, and takes over their, their controls, their mind. They're controlled by their addictions, and they're, and it's like mind control. So,
0: so that's one of the issues here. Yeah, learning about food addiction was a real—like, I first was learning about that actually from Chef AJ, you know her from True North, and she, she talks about that a lot, and there's like a reason why we crave pizza or why we, people can't stop eating the whole bag of chips or if you eat one cookie you want five cookies. And I think that we kind of some people dismiss the food addiction part and they say, "Oh, well, whatever." But no, it, it's like really serious.
1: It is, and if you're overweight, you're probably a food addict. You know, and and I and I um tell people that, you know, I call the, my approach a nutritarian approach like the new emphasizing the complete and excellent exposure to nutrients on the program. But I say you're not a nutritarian unless you're either eating right and at your normal weight, at a good weight, a healthy weight, or you're eating right and you're gradually losing weight, usually at least two pounds a week. If you're more than 30 pounds overweight and you're not losing weight at two pounds a week, then you're not doing the right thing and you're not on a nutritarian program. Because a nutritarian program causes people to lose two pounds a week. And for males, it sometimes causes three pounds a week. So the the point I'm making is that if they're really doing this, their weight will be coming down. And the good news here is that the, the damage from having the high fat on the body starts to undo itself and disappear as long as the person keeps up the weight loss. In other words, you can be overweight and your estrogens can come down and your insulin can come down, and your IGF-1 can come down, and you can start to get more favorable parameters as you're losing weight and you're overweight, if you keep up the two pounds a week to week of the weight coming off. But the minute you're overweight and you're eating to maintain that weight, then you start to see these problems develop, and if you gain weight, they get even worse if you gain weight. Many people you know, go on these diet, these fad diets or these crazy diets and they gain, lose some weight and they gain it back again, and that really has a negative impact on their body too.
0: So a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably in that 2.5% where they are athletes and they're probably not they're not very overweight or they're not overweight at all. What about cancer prevention or incidence for people who are quote at a healthy BMI and exercise but don't eat a nutritarian diet?
1: Well, you know, I'm saying right now that it's a a necessity to be a normal weight if you're healthy, but there are plenty of people at normal weight who aren't healthy. Being at normal weight doesn't mean you're healthy. It just means you you have a You know, but in any case, um, you know, we're, we're all living and enjoying our lives, what we want, but our hope is that we stay living into our nine, you know, when we have this opportunity to live to be 95 to 105 years old, and in America, in North, in the United States, we have one of the worst life, healthy life expectancy scores of any industrialized modern country, any westernized country, because people are suffering so much once they get to be older. So if their average age of death might be around 80, but the but from 70 to 80, the last 10 years of their life is miserable and they're sickly. So I'm saying if you're gonna push the, the lifespan to 100 and live 20 years longer, what good is that if your life is hell, is a living hell when you're living longer? A nutritarian diet is necessary to have your life be fulfilled and enjoyable in, as you live to be 100 years old. If we wanna be able out there playing sports, and enjoying our life and being active and being you know doing what we want to do with our lives and really get the full pleasure of living, making those golden years truly golden, then you have no choice but to learn how to eat a nutritarian diet because that's what's going to make your stack the deck in your favor to make that possible. And the other thing is, is that it tastes great, and I have to brag about myself and my staff and my contacts of my famous world chefs. Like, you know, like Martin Oswald from Aspen, Colorado, and, and Jim, Ron, you know, and, and James from Chicago. In other words, the people that I have on my team over these, over to, to make these incredible recipes, to show people that healthy eating is just as enjoyable and more enjoyable. We're not giving up pleasure to get a good life at the end of our life. We're, having, we're enhancing the pleasure of eating, not lowering it. It's called a no-brainer. And so we've done the work for you you know to to show you the great recipes how to change your taste buds how to remove the addictions how to make the diet stuff to make it protect against cancer and how to supplement appropriately to make sure you're not deficient in any nutrient that could shorten your lifespan or to make or to increase risk of dementia we've done all the work all the homework all the research to make it easy for people to do the right thing and to protect their precious health and to make it taste great in the process
0: a frustration that i have is about like Surgeon General and USDA and like if you go on some of these Cancer Association websites, like it still recommends eating animal products. And also with the processed foods and the food addiction, we know it's so bad for you. Why isn't that illegal? Like I I know that there's money and it's complicated, but a lot of times people look to those sources as a credible source of how they should be eating. So is there anything that can be done about this?
1: Well, we have to at least admit that those national authorities who are affected by monetary you know, social pressures, lobbyists and, and tradition and what they think people are willing to do have still moved in the right direction over the last 20 years. It was worse years ago and I've been doing this for 30 years now and I've seen tremendous change in things moving closer to the direction that I've been preaching for the last 30 years. So even though it's still not there, it's certainly closer than it was in the past, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So there has been some movement, and they lag they're usually 10 or 20 years behind the time, behind the science.
0: Okay. And how about mental health diseases? We've talked a lot about on the show with people about like cancer and autoimmune diseases and heart disease and things like that, but we haven't really gone into mental health diseases and how eating this way can help.
1: Well, that's right, I, mean, I, I wrote a book about that too, by the way, it's called Fast Food Genocide, it's one of my most recent books and I think one of my best books but of course it's not going to be one of my best selling books because the name I think it's people you know buy the cookbooks and the weight loss books but the fast food genocide anyway I think it's really a must read it really depicts all the things we're talking about and so on a social and societal and historical level of how we got here and how it affects people's ability to think clearly and how these addictions tend to take over your mind and create mental illness too. In any case, right now we have one in five Americans who are mentally ill, whereas a hundred years ago it was one in a hundred Americans who are mentally ill. And the link between processed foods, commercial baked goods, and fast food and, and depression, major depression, is solid in the scientific literature. Even two servings a week of fast food or commercial baked goods are linked to a fifty percent increased risk of developing depression. And it goes up from there in a dose-dependent manner. And what I'm saying right now is that most people eat or are eating and are eating fast foods and commercial baked goods um, multiple times a week. And even if they're not depressed, it makes them dysthymic. In other words, Mm. it it affects their ability to think clearly and to be happy and it makes their life flat and they're no longer excited about living. They just live to make some money so they can spend it on their addictions and drink and eat badly and go back to making money again. And they're just living life like robots you know, without really getting the the full um, passion for living, that's possible. What I'm saying is fast food and processed, the the low nutrient diet strips us of our humanity. It makes us less caring, less giving, less loving, less creative. It dummies down our population and it affects their ability to think clearly and be compassionate.
0: Yeah. And again, I know I'm kind of hammering this, but I'm thinking about our, our audience. Like, I know lots of people that race their bike and you know, they still eat fast food. Like, again, they're like, they're thin, they're muscular, they can go fast, but they're still like having their treat of fast food, but that that still affects you.
1: And that's, you know, obviously we can smoke cigarettes and maybe not see the effects for 40 years because while you're smoking and you're young, you get away with it, but you don't get away with it. You feel okay for a while and you don't see the effects to decades later. And these people aren't getting away with anything they're just going to see the effects decades later because we you can't escape from the biological laws of cause and effect. And when you put poisonous substances in the body, you're doing something destructive to your body, even if you don't feel it.
0: So what about supplements? Because I know like a lot of people ask, especially as athletes, there's additional supplements apart from just for health reasons that people take, but the supplement industry is a challenging one because there's lack of regulation. And then there's also just... Supplements that people don't know what they should be taking, and I know that the one I want to specifically talk about is DHA, and I've heard you speak about this a lot, and I think it's a really important point.
1: It's extremely important, but before we get into that, I also want to reinforce what you said, is that there are certain supplemental ingredients that seem to increase the risk of cancer and may be particularly dangerous, and those are found in a lot of conventional supplements on the market and particularly we're talking about folic acid because folic acid is not the same thing as folate found in natural foods like green vegetables and beans and so when we're taking things like vitamin a acetyl and retinol palmitate or folic acid they are not the same thing as the real full spectrum carotenoids we get in food and it's not the same thing as the folate we get in natural plant food and because people don't eat enough vegetables and they're deficient in folate and you have now doctors and health authorities telling people to take folic acid to prevent birth defects in pregnancy Nobody's really talking about or recognizing the harm that's causing and the explosion of a cancer, of an epidemic of childhood cancer, an increasing risk of breast and ch- prostate and colorectal cancer. And instead of telling people you have to eat green vegetables for the real thing, for the folate we're lacking, they put them on a folic acid pill, which is toxic and doesn't behave like folate. And now people don't have to eat green vegetables for their protective effects. So I, I just want to make it clear that certain conventional supplements are dangerous. Now the other question you're asking is on a vegan diet, how do we make the vegan diet optimal so it's not missing anything that you may have gotten that would be important if you were eating animal, if some amount of animal products? Because there's not a, a lot of um, historical evidence on vegans living in, in for most of human history. And the answer to the question is that yes, we we have to take a little extra B12 more than the RDI when we're taking a supplement, because we need and we should be taking B12 on plant-based diets. And it may be also advantageous for many people to be taking iodine zinc and vitamin d iodine zinc and vitamin d because we're not eating seafood and we're not necessarily eating seaweed you can get seaweed and iodine from plants but a lot of people don't and then b12 vitamin d you can get from enough sunshine but most of us live in climates and are cold indoors and don't have the opportunity to do that and want to protect our skin against skin cancer And so that's, so many people could be vitamin D deficient. And zinc is low, we absorb zinc less as we age. And we know that zinc absorption, that zinc given to the elderly decreases risk of infection and pneumonia. And on a vegan diet, our ability to absorb zinc is somewhat less. We only absorb about 20% of the zinc in the food compared to 80% in animal products. So it may be the case that zinc supplementation is beneficial for a vegan. And then the most important thing that I advocate is taking some DHA and EPA, particularly DHA, because my experience of the last 30 years have seen with my first hand, so many vegans develop either dementia or Parkinson's. Actually, remember I said earlier the natural hygiene movement from Herbert Shelton that I, in my teenage and young 20s, involved with all these people at these con- conferences were following plant-based diets. And many of these people who were my mentors and who I respected and, and loved developed dementia or Parkinson's because they didn't know that on a vegan diet could potentially put their levels of DHA low and shrink their brain. And the studies corroborate that. The studies show that when we follow the omega-3 index, that any study looking at omega-3 index with long-term outcome shows cognitive impairment with lower omega-3 index scores and brain shrinkage with aging with lower omega-3 index scores. So it's very important that we err on the side of caution here And we don't encourage people to develop dementia or cognitive impairment as they age, especially if they're counting on us for this type of diet to be safe. So either taking a DHA supplement, and of course there's DHA, EPA, vegan, you don't have to take fish oil to get that. And if you don't want to take a supplement, at least be precautionary and do a blood test and make sure your index is above five don't take a chance with your wife. I've seen so many people with going around the indexes of one, two or three and eventually develop problems. Just recently, I even had a couple that, who were scammed. Their house was stolen away from them. You know, and they were in the actual hygiene movement because because both the husband and the wife became demented enough where they could be tricked and then they lost the brain function. I had to go to testify and write an affidavit to get their house back from somebody who stole it from them because they, for a low price, because they didn't have the intellectual capacity to negotiate for themselves in a favorable manner. You know, so I've been living. I've been living with these this crisis, which has been buried by the vegan community. That it is important to be making sure you have adequate DHA for later life brain function. If your person's not eating fish, and it's not just vegans. It's people who don't expose themselves because our natural diet would probably not just maybe include seafood, but maybe even worms, insects, lizards, frogs. You know, snakes and small animals, which have would have DHA naturally have DHA in them. You know,
0: <laughs> the idea of eating a lizard is. Just... <laughs> <laughs> or someone eating lizards is the next big thing. is, is kind of funny.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. I don't see why people are so adverse to eating insects and lizards. You know, they they go on this like naked and and um, fear, afraid and naked in the woods or in the jungle. What's that TV show where they go in with no sho- with no shoes? I could go in the jungle and live there off the land, but I'm not going in with no shoes or socks on because you know walking barefoot. That would like God. That would be um, anyway. You know, especially with our feet are not acclimated to that kind of surfaces and getting, but. I guess the point I'm making is these people will be bitten up by insects, they'll be, t- they'll be starving to death, and they won't even be eating the insects and the worms and digging in the ground looking for food, they're just because they're so acclimated to, being, to be turned off from eating insects as food, you know what I mean? But what I'm saying right now is that probably early humans ate some foods that we don't consider food today. They ate a lot of pine nuts and the pine trees, they ate more onions and mushrooms and things that grew, and they ate wild weeds and wild greens are ubiquitous in the jungles and woods, And obviously, they ate small animals, you know, lizards and frogs and insects and things that could be easily caught.
0: If people are still eating a diet high in omega-3s, isn't there like a conversion problem that some people have with ALA and they still need to be taking DHA if their body can't convert it properly?
1: The conversion is very low from ALA to EPA, EPA, but from EPA to DHA, the conversion is even lower. And And it's genetically determined. So that's true, is that some people with adequate ALA, even limiting omega-6 fatty acids that can compete for the conversion enzymes, because genetics plays such an important role, some people will have adequate conversion and can make an adequate amount of DHA under those circumstances. But other people, because of their ability to convert those um, enzymes, still don't make enough. So it's really, so for safety, we're either giving it to people or we're saying, well, if you if you want to see if you convert adequately, at least draw a blood test to make sure your conversion is adequate. Don't just bury your head in the sand and assume that you're going to be okay and wait till something happens. Because once you get demented or once you get brain shrinkage, it's you can't grow your brain back and, and undo the problem. It's really a, a serious problem that needs prevention, not cure.
0: Gotcha. So I want to go back to this your G bombs acronym: greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. A lot of times, I don't hear mushrooms mentioned very often, and mushrooms are amazing. Like I, I just love eating them because I love the taste and I love the diversity of flavor. Can you talk more specifically about mushrooms? Because that's that's not something that's brought up that often.
1: Well, I don't. I think also people don't recognize the incredible anti-cancer potential of soybeans. They think soy. I'm not talking about tofu or soy milk, I'm talking about real soybeans like Edim- edamame, edamame, tempeh, or dried soybeans that you buy like little hard round rocks, and you soak them in the water, and you cook them into a chili or a soup. They have tremendous anti-cancer effects that people are not recognizing enough, and they mm-hmm. remarkably have anti-estrogenic effects on breast and prostate tissues, anti-estrogenic effects to prevent estrogen stimulation of breast and prostate tissue, while at the same time, the genistein has positive estrogen stimulation effects on bone tissue, preventing osteoporosis. So that's under-recognized, too. And, and there's, there's myths on the internet that making people fear eating soybeans. Okay, that's number one. The second thing is mushrooms are the most powerful aromatase inhibitors, which means they low, naturally lower estrogen levels. So they, we know that we give women tamoxifen as an aromatase inhibitor, so they keep their estrogen lowers when they have breast cancer. And a lot of physicians and scientists are recognizing that are recommending that women take aromatase inhibitors before they get breast cancer, just preventatively, which is kind of ridiculous anyway. But the point I'm making is the best natural aromatase inhibitors, and they're also angiogenic inhibitors which prevent growth of cancers, are mushrooms. And eating a variety of mushrooms in your diet is tremendously powerful. And it reminds me of a recent study where women who had 10 grams of mushrooms a day had a 64% lower risk of developing breast cancer. You know, if there was a drug like that, people would be paying $10,000 a month for it. You know what I mean? It's like, so food does what drugs can't do and a healthy diet is a thousand times more effective than medical care at treating, preventing and treating these disease. Medical care is a proven failure at preventing common causes of death. And, and it's just, we can't go to doctors and expect them to give mammograms and other screening tests and that's gonna protect us against cancer. That's not even logical, because it's not even doing anything to stop cancer, it's just trying to detect it, it's not stopping it, it's just detecting it when you get it. And by that point, the horse is out of the barn. In other words, at that point, most of these cancers are aggressive, they've spread, and medical care has little, very little effect at changing the trajectory of your life at that point.
0: So what about dried mushrooms versus fresh mushrooms? I posted, I have a couple different communities online and I put that you're coming on the show. And a lot of people are asking about dried mushrooms and if they have the same amount of nutrients.
1: I can't answer that question with 100% authority, Mm -hmm. but I can say that studies on dried mushrooms show they have protective effects against cancer. We know that the studies show both the fresh mushrooms and the dried mushrooms have been shown to have powerful beneficial longevity and anti-cancer effects. But to say which is better you know i can't say that for sure Mm -hmm. i know what i recommend people do based on my intuition and study is that they should eat fresh mushrooms every day and they should also take a supplement with a variety of dried mushrooms in it to get the full Mm -hmm. spectrum of mushrooms they can't necessarily get from their exposure to fresh mushrooms so we should probably do both but i have no 100 percent documentation that this is the right approach but it just seems to be because both of those things are shown to have beneficial longevity effects and we know that a bigger exposure to green, different types of green vegetables is more lifespan enhancing, and a different and a and more variety exposure to different mushroom types is been shown to have as light benefits for lifespan. And we can't eat a lot of different types of the fresh mushrooms usually available. It's only like a couple of types. So by using some dried mushrooms to increase the exposure to different types of mushroom features is most likely an asset to our health program.
0: What about these mushroom teas that you keep hearing about, or like it seems like you know, in North America, you have like cremini, shiitake, you know, or like the mushrooms you use in your Italian food, chanterelle, but then there's all these like Chinese mushrooms. Are those better than or like, because you hear like, oh yeah, chaga is going to be way better for you than eating a cremini mushroom, but I I don't know enough about it.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that the cremini and the white button and the portobellos have been shown to have very powerful beneficial effects against cancer. The cheaper, more common mushrooms still are more miraculous foods. So just because those other more exotic mushrooms may also be beneficial, it doesn't diminish the importance or the effectiveness of eating the cheaper common mushrooms. You should do both.
0: Okay, and some other questions people have asked is raw versus cooked foods, or I guess vegetables. Are some better than others to eat raw versus cooked, or does that matter?
1: It does matter, and most of your mushrooms should be cooked or dried, not raw, because there's a mild carcinogen called garotine that blows off even with a little bit of cooking. So cooked mushrooms are the way to go, you know, sauteed in water or cooked in a soup or a stew or a chili. And then we want people to eat a big salad every day. And we want them to have at least one large salad a day where they're eating raw vegetables because the raw cruciferous family has an enzyme, a heat-sensitive enzyme called myrosinase that catalyzes the reaction to form the ITCs, which are the most powerful anti-cancer compounds in the plant kingdom, which are formed in your mouth as you're chewing the vegetable. If you overcook the vegetable, it could deactivate the myrosinase, so then when you chew or break open the cells, you're not going to form any ITCs. So on one hand, we're recommending people eat a big salad and put some raw cruciferous on top of it, like arugula or cabbage or baby bok choy, and then we're saying when you eat your kale and your brussels sprouts and your broccoli and your other and your sc- cabbage in a wok, don't overcook it. Wok it for six or eight minutes. Or you, or when you're putting it in water to blend, take it in and take it out in ninety don't overcook these foods because if you cook them conservatively, we could retain a lot of that myrosinase activity, maximizing their anti-cancer effects.
0: And what about putting them in smoothies because you're not chewing it so your saliva is not producing sorry, is it ITCs?
1: Yes, the, the myrosinase enzyme produces the ITCs. It's the, the the glucosinolate in the vegetable is changes into ITCs by the activity of the myrosinase enzyme. So when you put it in the blender, you break open the cell walls and you mix the glucosinolate with the myrosinase, forming the ITCs in the blender instead of your mouth. So eating blended, so we do recommend people blend their cruciferous and also blend the onion family before you add it to the soups to cook. So we maximize the formation of those compounds before you apply heat to the food, because you won't destroy the compounds, it would have just destroyed the enzymes that form the compounds. So yes, so eating smooth green smoothies are, are, are good people, especially if you don't have time to chew a salad, but I don't recommend people do that instead of eating a salad. It should be in addition to eating a salad because there's still some additional benefits you get by chewing and mixing the food with the saliva and the teeth and the structure of the jaw and the bacteria in the mouth producing more nitric oxide. So there's some beneficial effects from chewing the salad as well. So I think people shouldn't just do smoothies, they should do the salads too.
0: Yeah, and just a quick tip for everyone. I actually just throw a chunk of raw, like a big chunk of raw broccoli, if I'm making a green smoothie. I mean, if you put too much in there, you can really taste it. But if you just throw a little bit in there, that's just another easy way to get more cruciferous. Okay, so how about fresh versus frozen? This is something I've been trying to pay more attention to in terms of like nutrient value. And I've heard lots of different things about it.
1: Well, I think frozen food is a tremendous asset to our ability to live a long life, especially. You know, the, what about frozen wild berries and frozen cherries and frozen pomegranate arielles? We don't have, you know, we couldn't be eating wild blueberries fresh, but they're such an incredible food. But And they're so expensive. You're buying organic berries, not maybe where you live, because you're like in the organic berry capital of the world <laughs> there. It's awesome. <laughs> but in other parts of the country, we need to use the frozen to get those into us because we get the fresh and they, they're without being put a fungicide on them, they're gonna go bad in the store, have a white mold on them, or we are gonna cost $5 for a little tiny flap this big, and then we're gonna put them in our refrigerator, and we're gonna open up the next day, and they're gonna be moldy anyway. So by buying frozen I think is very, very valuable to expand the nutritional variety of our diet. And even when you're buying vegetables frozen, like frozen broccoli or, you know, or snow pea pods or okra, they usually just quick blanching it. They're not overcooking it, so the vegetable usually is very nutritious. And you know, there are other beneficial effects of green vegetables other than the ITCs too. It doesn't mean we're eating frozen vegetables and we're not getting, because they have less ITCs than, than, uh, than fresh greens that we eat. It doesn't mean that we're still not eating the fresh greens because we're still getting a lot of other nutrients that are beneficial in the frozen food. So I'm, you can get unsalted, we can get frozen vegetables and fruits that have no other ingredients, other with no salt and no other ingredients, no oil. They're just plain frozen vegetables and they're organically grown and they're grown clean, and I think that's an asset. And even if they're not as good as growing your own, they still can increase the variety in, to your diet. And we should also, obviously, try to grow some of our own food or eat some local organic produce, because that's an important part of that, that your um, good health. And I'm trying more and more to garden and grow some vegetables fresh and microgreens and sprouts and to grow some of my own fruits and vegetables, which I think people should do more and more.
0: Yeah, actually, Brenda Davis told me to ask you about how you eat at home and about your garden.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time making great soil. You know, I have in my retreat in San Diego, I've got like um, biochar and bat guano and earthworm cast. Guano, Ace Ventura. Wild... <laughs>
0: guano from Ace Ventura. <laughs> yeah, right,
1: right. So in <laughs> other words, the, I make such great soil. And when you put these ve- the seeds in the great soil, it's amazing how fast they grow. You know, I remember one day we hadn't had the fence around the garden done well. So rabbits came in and ate all the vegetables, right? they all the little vegetables. So I fixed the fence. But within two weeks, all the vegetables regrew like crazy. I, the soil was so good that the speed of growth was just amazing on the on replenishing the, what, the, what was in the garden. You know, what I'm saying right now is that if you put the work in, in the soil and make your own compost and, and buy some composting worms and use leaves... And I go into the backyard of my house and and I rake leaves out of the jungle, out of the woods, you know, and put them in my compost, my worms, my food scraps. And I make, you know, so but in any case, um, and I scoop up the deer poop off my lawn. I put that in the compost, too. But anyway, I'm I'm and then I put that on my asparagus bed and my asparagus beds, you know, like they keep coming up every year. You know, they grow. You can almost watch them grow with your own eyes. It just goes so fast. So I think that's an enjoyable part of life to garden, reap the harvest of what you grow and to grow some of your own food, I think it's healthy for you, it's healthy to be in touch okay. with the soil, and it's healthy for you to grow some of them. Some of the food that you consume. I, I think it's really good for people, and I'm into it.
0: The last thing I wanna ask about is sprouting, and I've been hearing more and more about this, and you actually don't need a, like if you don't have access to a garden, you can sprout in your kitchen. Why is sprouting so good?
1: Well, you know, we use sprouting microgreens and in, in baby vegetables because when the food is young, it increases its density of these compounds to fend off insects and funguses. There's, there's more concentration of the nutrients to protect the plant against being killed when it's young and those nutrients beneficial, are beneficial to us. So by including some young vegetables, you know, baby foods or microgreens or sprouts in the diet is another advantage to maximizing nutrition. And I recognize that I'm into nutritional excellence and my niche is to teach people what's ideal and most protective. And I recognize that the majority of people aren't gonna be this healthy, but I don't wanna sell people out and weaken the recommendations and not give them what's best because then they have the full informed consent to do what's best if they want to have the best outcomes. And that makes this most effective for reversing diseases, like getting rid of your psoriasis, reversing your diabetes, or getting rid of your lupus. You know, the point is is that these little nuances we're talking about now may be a little advanced for most people, to try to perfect the diet to this degree. But when we're talking about a person who has cancer or has lupus or psoriasis or has some sickness, these little nuances make a big difference and help to manifest the recovery.
0: So I think now you're at 13 books because by the time this show comes out, your Eat for Life will be out. If someone wants to pick up one or two of those books, which one should they get?
1: <laughs> Eat for Life should be the book they get the most because it's the most recent, the most fully Packed with the research, with the recent research. But I think my book, The End of Dieting, is so important to discuss the food addiction and the emotional overeating behavior. And The End of Dieting is such an important book. It's not that big. It's digestible for people who are overweight and who struggle with keeping their weight down. And that's so many people who, you know, it's not, I don't think um, an athlete should buy that book. They should buy Super Immunity or Eat for Life, but certainly for a person that has overweight and that's most, and so many people are overweight, that should be the book, The End of Dieting.
0: Awesome. Um and wh- what is your website if people want to go check it out and see everything you're up to?
1: Uh, drferman.com ncom and there's in- we have a retreat tab there for people want to know more about the retreat and we have e-learning and you know teachings and website and of course. I have a membership there too where people can join as a member and they can either read or ask the doctor and ha- and communicate with us directly through the forums there and communicate with other people and get involved in a community, a support community, which is very helpful for people making this change.
0: Cool, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really fun to get to talk to you and to learn some new things too.
1: My pleasure. Of course, good luck and best of health to you and of course, all your listeners.
0: I hope you guys got a lot out of that with Dr. Furman. Man, I learned a lot and he has so many books. I haven't read them all, but I have read several of them and there's so much value in all of them. There's recipes and I think pretty much all of them and I'm pretty excited about his new book as well. Also check out his TED talk that is linked in the show notes and we've also linked up Herbert Shelton who was his original nutrition inspiration. I hope you guys have an awesome week. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you right back here next week.